good to be with you on this Resurrection Sunday. It's good to see some of the faces that we don't usually see of friends and family who have joined us today. We're so glad and hope you all have a good afternoon together. And uh, as we celebrate uh, this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday together, uh, I want to just help us in this journey as we look at the end of Matthew's Gospel. We're actually will start today in the 27th chapter, starting with the 62nd verse. We're starting not on uh, Sunday morning today. We're actually starting on yesterday morning from the story and, uh, and how the leaders of the Jewish people responded to the death of Jesus. So here we go. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive that that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. And so he gave the order, so give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples might come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. And so they went. They made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary, Mag Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. But suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, they clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night. They stole away his body while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you guys out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money they did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus, help me lift you up. Uh, we give thanks for your resurrection presence this morning and the presence of your Spirit. And Lord, I pray as Paul prayed that my words might not just be wise and persuasive, Lord, but that they might have a demonstration of your Spirit, of your power, and your love, that we might encounter you this day, and that it may shape all our days before us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, it is a great, joyful day. It's a good day to rejoice at the resurrection of Jesus. Like Mary and the other Mary who were able to encounter the risen Christ that day, it is good news. Death's door has been defeated. Death will not have the last word. Instead, Jesus has promised us a kingdom and life, not just in heaven, but a kingdom we're to live out today and every day of our lives, allowing him to lead and guide us. And that's the good news we embrace and share together today. But I know for many in our culture and our society here in 2023, in our neighborhoods, co-workers, classmates, there's a lot of folks out there who when it comes to the story of Jesus and this day, they're very skeptical. They say, uh, I don't know. I mean, how many people do I know that like have died and risen again? Y'all, I have done well over 100 funerals in my last 20 years. In fact, in the last two years, I think I've done... 25. I haven't seen anybody get up out of the grave, ever. Once they go in, they don't really come out. Why is Jesus different? And why is that important even in our day and age now? I was reading an article uh, just a few days ago in CNN. It was from a, a, a uh, Christian, well, Christian historian. And uh, she shares about uh, her thoughts on the church, especially the church that says things like, you know, the resurrection of Jesus really happened. And this is what she says. She says, Evangelicalism emerged in the 18th century, largely because forms of empirical reason and rational calculation seemed more real than the miracles of Jesus or the mystery of salvation. By the early 20th century, that anxiety had become the central concern for a large number of Christians. The worry that the story of Jesus might be more akin to a myth or a fable, that the miracles of Jesus and the revelation of God might be challenged by other standards of truth like scientific empiricism or religious pluralism. That these stories don't feel real the way gravity is real or your mortgage payment is real. These are the words from Catherine Reckless and her thoughts. And as she tells the story of what the media calls evangelicalism, I'm not always sure that's the best term or not, um, but as she shares this story, that the church that we have entered an age where we're kind of afraid maybe 
what Jesus did or what we have to say about Jesus doesn't really make a whole lot of difference anymore. And so today, I want to kind of tackle that question head on. Matthew is one of the early gospel writers who tackles that question head on by dealing not just with Jesus' resurrection, but by dealing also with the conspiracy theories that tried to come in and say, eh, he's not really resurrected. It never really happened because there's nothing really new under the sun. And so this morning I want to talk to you kind of about why I still believe in the resurrection of Jesus in 2023. Now, the first thing where we might begin is to say, well, Chris, if you're going to do that, you've got to prove the resurrection of Jesus scientifically. Show me scientifically that Jesus rose from the dead. And my answer to that is, sorry, I can't do that. That's not possible. You say, what do you mean it's not possible? Well, you see, science is based on the scientific method. And the way you do science with the scientific method is when you have a hypothesis, you run experiments, you run those experiments over and over and over and over and over again, and then if they all agree, then you get certain results, and you can say, well, it worked or it didn't. The problem is, brothers and sisters, is history does not work that way. Like, for instance, John F. Kennedy was the 35th president of the United States, and he died in 1963 by assassination. We can say those things, but I don't think we can prove that scientifically, and it's only been 60 or 70 years ago that that happened, right? Science and history work differently. You see, history is more fashioned on the basis of a courtroom. And in that courtroom, evidence is presented by one side or by the other. This is why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, or this is why the resurrection of Jesus could not have occurred. And in that courtroom, there will be evidence like the Bible. There will be evidence like other ancient historians. There will be evidence like archaeology. But with all those sources of evidence, remember, particularly with archaeology, that we only know what archaeology we have today. Archaeologists could find something totally new tomorrow and the next day, and things would completely change from what we knew yesterday and last week. But the evidence is presented, and then as a thinking, rational people, we get to decide, is this evidence credible or not? Now, for me, this is important. I'm a Georgia Tech graduate, for goodness sake. Reason matters to me. Using my head matters to me. Yes, I love faith. Faith is the way of, of receiving God's grace. But faith and reason should work together and can work together. God never meant them to be opposed to each other. And so as we look at this, uh, today I want to give you just a couple of the main things, the main pieces of evidence that challenge me to trust in Jesus. All right? So the first thing we notice, the first bit of evidence that is shown in Matthew's gospel, and the first bit of evidence that we really know historically, and let me talk real briefly what historians, I think, secular historians would say as well as Christian historians, right? 
all historians will acknowledge a couple of things when it comes to Jesus. One, he's a real human being. Like, he's different than King Arthur, right? We still, I think, don't really know if there was a real King Arthur or not. We just have these stories. But with Jesus, it's not just stories. It's not just a fable. It's not just a myth. But we have a historical record that he was a real human being. He walked on this planet. He taught some things that we have written down. And these things that he he's taught has shaped Western culture in unperceptible and fundamental ways for 2,000 years in ways that I think have helped Western culture advance in some ways more than most other cultures around the world. And then not only that, we know that Jesus not only taught some things, we know that he was eventually convicted of being a king, a rival to Caesar. He was nailed to a cross. He was buried in a tomb. We know all that historically, that those are the basic things we know historically happened about Jesus. And then one other bit of information that I think we also know is that on this particular Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago, when Mary and the other Mary came to the tomb, the tomb was empty. And this is the first main piece of historical evidence for us. With Jesus, there is an empty tomb. With Jesus, we have never found his body. If anybody had found the body of Jesus, we would not be here this Sunday morning. We might be in a synagogue. We might be in a you know, Muslim worship place. We might be Hindu. I don't know, but we wouldn't be here. Because if somebody had found Jesus' body, Christianity would have been undone. And so how historically do we explain the empty tomb? How do we do that? Well, to me, the best explanation would be is if the tomb is empty, it's either Jesus rose from the dead or very likely kind of the best other thing is somebody took the body and did something with it. Those are kind of our main two choices. There are some others, but those are the main two. And that's what Matthew talks about today, that this idea that somebody stole the body. So let's look at that. If somebody stole the body of Jesus and he wasn't resurrected, then it would have been probably one of three groups of people could have stolen Jesus' body. The first group of people that might have taken Jesus' body would have been the religious leaders or the political leaders of the day. The Pharisees, the chief priests, and all of them, they might have wanted to keep Jesus' body for themselves because hints are that they knew that Jesus had talked about this resurrection kind of thing. But if the Jewish leaders had have been the ones that had kept the body for themselves, then that doesn't make any sense, does it? Because three or four weeks later, the Apostle Peter stands up. The other disciples began standing up and saying, Jesus is risen from the dead. We've seen him. He conquered death. We're following him. We want you to follow him too. And if the Jewish leaders have the body, what are they going to do with the body? 
they're going to parade it around the streets of Jerusalem and say, those guys over there are lying. Here it is. You can see it. We've got it. We've had it. We've always had it. Historically, that did not happen. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Jewish leaders or the other political leaders did not have the body of Jesus because we know what they would have done with it if they had. And they didn't do that. Well, a second group of people could have stolen the body. Let's just say it's general robbers, right? Just people that think this guy has been cool. Everybody's loved him and followed him. We're going to take him and his stuff and see what we can make with it. See, you know, maybe make some money or whatever. The problem with general robbers taking the body is that uh, if that had been the case, why did they leave the most valuable things folded up inside the tomb? Because they left Jesus' grave clothes folded up in the tomb. That was the valuable part. They could have taken those grave clothes and sold them for all sorts of money. But they took the time to steal the body, to fold up the grave clothes, and leave them behind like, I don't need them anymore. So that doesn't make sense either. In fact, we may still have the grave clothes, right? Called the Shroud of Turin. I mean, I don't know if it is or not, but it's, it still could be. It hasn't been proven one way or the other, for sure. And so that doesn't really make any sense at all. Why would anybody steal the body and not take the valuable things? So the third group is the group that Matthew deals with, the group that, that uh, the religious leaders were afraid of. Maybe the disciples did it. Maybe Peter, James, and John, maybe they were the culprits. But could that really be the case either? I mean, every indication from the Gospels, and it makes sense psychologically, is that the disciples were shocked that their master had been crucified. And they were in a state of shock that he was crucified. There is nothing in the Gospels anyway that anywhere in their inkling brain that they had any itch to try to get the body back. I mean, they probably could have just gone to Joseph of Arimathea and said, Joseph, uh, instead of burying him here, let's secretly bury him somewhere else and we'll just keep the body for ourselves. But they didn't do that. If they were going to steal the body, it would have been best to steal the body before the guards get there on a Friday night or on the Sabbath, early Saturday. But they didn't do that. The disciples left the body alone. The disciples were afraid that they may be the next ones on the cross, that they would be the next ones thrown in prison. And so they were lying low, scared for their lives that they might become like their master, nailed to a cross. That seems kind of unlikely as well. And so, if none of these three options really work, then as Sir, Con Sir C Arthur Conan Doyle once said with Sherlock Holmes, when the impossible, excuse me, when the impossible has been eliminated, all that remains no matter how improbable it is, is possible. When the impossible has been eliminated, all that remains, no matter how improbable it is, 
is possible. And that's sort of the Christian case in the resurrection. It doesn't look like anybody stole the body. The body is missing. The tomb is empty. Therefore, the only other obvious explanation is he rose from the dead and he walked out of the tomb on his own. Now, another question that I often get about this is, but Chris, the Gospels were written uh, so long after Jesus' death and resurrection. I mean, when Matthew writes his text, he's writing probably 50, well, 40, 50 years after the events of his death and resurrection. How can you trust what Matthew or Mark or Luke or any of them have to say about this event? And a lot of them weren't necessarily first-person eyewitnesses. So how do you know? Well, in our affirmation of faith this morning, we connected our affirmation of faith to Paul's letter to the 1 Corinthian church, um, chapter 15. And in our affirmation, it stated that Jesus appeared first to the women, then to Peter, then to the twelve, and after that, to more than 500 people. Now, Paul is not writing this 50, 60 years later. Paul is pinning this letter within 20 to 25 years of the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he is saying hardly a generation after the historical event, there are 500 people. Most of these 500 are still alive men and women that are still alive. If you want to know if Jesus rose from the grave or not, I can give you names and addresses, and you can write down today, and you can put the name and address down. You can mail the letter to how many of them you want, and you can say, did you really see this guy out of the tomb, or are you just making this thing up? In Paul's case, within 20 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus, is yes there are 500 people that will say Jesus is not there because he rose historically from the dead. Now let me uh, emphasize this just a little bit more. Approximately a generation ago, how many of you remember what happened on 9-11? How many of you remember very closely what you were doing on 9-11 when that happened? I do too. I was a youth pastor at Tekoa First Methodist Church. I'd gone into the office that morning, an office I haven't been into in 20 years. I still vividly remember how the office looks and how it was set up and the secretary and where she sat and all those things. And I remember that day in particular that she started saying something funny is going, she'd always had the radio on, you know, you know she was old school. You know, instead of the internet, she was listening to the radio it, and on the radio that morning, it started coming on, something's going on in New York, and some planes accidentally crashed into the World Trade Center. And uh, very shortly after that, we hear that some other planes had crashed, and that was before you could, like, go on the websites and click and watch the live video streams of anything in New York, right? And so I didn't want to go home because I was supposed to be at work, but like all of us, I was totally stunned. So you know what I did? I went down to the old fellowship hall. And down in the old fellowship hall, I cranked on one of the old TVs that was connected to the cable or whatever. And for the rest of the day, I was standing there watching the burning towers and people running 
and then one fall to the ground in, in a cloud of smoke, and then the other fall to the ground. I remember that vividly. I remember later on that week, it was my custom as a youth minister to go to the middle school, and then after the middle school to go to the high school, and to sort of, you know, just have lunch with the kids, right? And I remember going there that day, and all the kids were like, is this the end of the world? Is this World War III? Are we, you know, is, is civilization, and I just had to say, no, no, just, just I, you know, we just got to wait. It's going to be okay. I remember that, it was 23 years ago. I remember it vividly. I was there like you were there. You probably remember significantly what you did on those days. Now let me ask you this question. If you were Mary and Mary, if you were Peter, or if you were one of the other disciples, John, and you got up three days after Jesus had been crucified, if, that, if the crucifixion wouldn't burn in your memory, I don't know what would be. But then secondly, if you go to the tomb and the tomb is empty, wouldn't that be burned in your memory? I know it would be. And then when you meet this figure uh, in Galilee or wherever, you meet Jesus himself and you say, man, he's here, all 500 of us. I mean, how many times do 500 people imagine something, right? Hallucinate. We're all, today we're all going to hallucinate together that something happens and make it up and we'll go out of here and we'll start a new religion. No, that's not how it works. Yet that's what happened. That brings us to the third piece of evidence, and that is the lives of the disciples themselves. The lives of the disciples themselves. Because let's say, okay, the disciples stole the body of Jesus and took him away. Let's say that's, that's what they did. Then how in God's name could they go out and proclaim a risen Jesus for the rest of their lives? How in God's name could they not only proclaim a risen Jesus, but be crucified upside down like Peter? How could they go like Paul and give their lives for a lie that they knew was a lie because they had kiped the body themselves? There's no way. One thing we know historically is that Peter and Paul and James and John and the other disciples, and Mary, one of the things we know historically, they knew that they had seen Jesus alive, and they were willing to die for that fact, and they did often die for that fact. And that is a historical fact. Now, maybe they were crazy. Maybe they were deluded. Maybe they were right. Maybe they were right. So that's why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus in 2023. Because I think there still is evidence that the tomb was empty and that the disciples lived in such a radical way that it changed the world. I mean, the Christian movement is the only movement I know of in history, the only movement I know of in human history that conquered the strongest empire in the world in 300 years without a battle, without a fight, without a sword. 
But yet this movement did it. And how did they do it? They did it because they had seen a fellow named Jesus out of the tomb, walking around, never dying again. And so I know we live in a skeptical day and a skeptical age, but my hope is, is that there is still a lot of hope. Jesus is still active in our lives and in our world, and there are still things that he is doing in and through and among us. I want to mention two quick ones, and then we'll send you home to have a great Easter lunch. Um, the first one is this. I read this story from Tina Hines yesterday. Um, Tina, in February of 2018, was going to go hiking with her family, and instead she had a heart attack. And she died right then and there, and she says she was dead for 27 minutes. And they kept trying to revive her, and they kept trying to revive her, and finally she came back. And the moment she came back, and the moment she was stabilized, she was on, uh, she was on not just oxygen, she was on the, the ventilator. Um, she wanted a piece of paper, and she started writing immediately, and she wrote these letters. She wrote I-T-S-R-E-A-L. And finally her husband looked at it and said, it's real what's real the pain is the pain real bad no the hospital no finally her daughter says heaven yes later on when she came out of it she spoke of her experience her near-death experience i just wanted to share that i saw jesus face to face and the unbelievable rest and peacefulness of what I was experiencing was Jesus standing there with his arms open wide. And right behind Jesus standing there was this incredible glow. It was the most vibrant and beautiful yellow. Now, I know that's one. There's a variety of near-death experiences, and they all kind of say something different. But it's still one bit of the evidence that one person has experienced for themselves who's been closer to the other side than I have. And then there's the other that I'll share today. And it's from uh, what God is doing in the Bhutanese Christian community, both here in, in our nation and also in Nepal. Um, Bhutan is kind of near Nepal and India. And in the 1990s, the Bhutanese, uh, there's kind of one ethnic group of them of course, nobody else liked, right? And so they began to persecute them and kick them out. So as they got kicked out, they'd either have to go to India or Nepal. And they lived, they've been living in refugee camps in India and Nepal like for generations, like for a long, long time, just barely eking out a living because Tan didn't want them back and probably Nepal and India really didn't want them. But in the camp, they started hearing about the resurrection of Jesus they started coming to faith in Christ and so here is one story of a fellow named Dilly Lumjail Dilly Lumjail remembers the day he gave his life to Jesus May 4th 2011 at 1 a.m. in the morning and this is what had happened that day his father-in-law and his mother-in-law had died and that day, he had led a Hindu funeral service for both of them. 
and the father-in-law and mother-in-law had just become followers of Jesus. And so one of the traditions they have is when the parents die, that the family goes and stays with the extended family. And so he was spending the night at his wife's uncle's house that evening. And as he went to sleep that night, he says he had a vision. His mother-in-law came to him and shared the good news of Jesus, saying this, If you enter this house, you have to believe in Jesus. Then he says he saw a flash of lightning from heaven, and he heard a voice saying, What you are hearing is true. You have to believe. And so in the dream, he knelt down in tears and gave his life to Jesus. So when he woke up, his face was still wet with his tears. He called a local pastor and said, I've had a dream and I'm a Christian. Now get this, he sees he became a Christian in the dream. The dream changed him into a follower of Jesus. His wife and his other relatives like thought he was crazy and wondered what he was doing. But the preacher eventually came and shared Jesus with his wife and him. They committed to follow Jesus. Within two weeks in the refugee camp, he was doing regular study of the scriptures and he was going out and telling others about this Jesus that he encountered just two weeks ago. Today, he lives in the United States as a refugee and he continues to work among his people, sharing Christ in the community that he is living in. Brothers and sisters, whether we're skeptical or not, Jesus finds people who aren't. He says, will you follow me? Will you believe the tomb is empty? Will you believe I've conquered death? Will you believe I'm worth following? So for me, I continue to try to say yes. Yes today, I'll follow you again today. So brothers and sisters, on this Easter, we've got good news to celebrate. Like the women, there should be a mixture of fear and awe and deep joy at what God has done. If Jesus has opened death's door, it can never be shut again. And there will be a day when we will be a part of his kingdom. And God's hope and call and mission for us is to take as many folks with us, no matter what they look like, no matter who they are, no matter what their life is present. Our call is to love them, to be gracious to them, and to lift up Jesus is your hope and my hope. Let's trust him. Let's follow him. And let's not give up until we see him face to face. So my prayer for you today is that you might keep following him. You might share your faith in him. And if you haven't, you might let him in and give him a chance and say, you know what? There may be something worth exploring when it comes to this person named Jesus. He might be worth my time, my energy, and my effort. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you for this Resurrection Sunday.